Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. According to psychologist and emotions expert Dr. George Bonanno, all of us share a surprising ability to be resilient. The interview you'll hear in this episode of the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast featuring Dr. George Bonanno was recorded in early 2019 at a Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Summit in Annapolis, Maryland. The event was devoted to the concept of resilience. Other summit guests have been featured on this podcast, including the co-founders of the Mission Critical Teams Institute, New York Times bestselling authors Lynn Vincent and Sarah Vladek, as well as LUF senior mentor James Roussel. To help listeners gain context for each summit conversation, LUF founder Jason Bresler and I discussed our reflections shortly after the event, which you'll hear prior to the interview. Dr. George Bonanno. So, so many things come to mind when I think about him and the work that he's done without giving too much away because we'll go over it during the interview with him. Sure. Jason, why did you think it would be good to have Dr. George Bonanno as our second speaker at the summit? Again, going back to the fact that there is a lot of planning that goes into these events. So Brennan explored resilience, right? He took his own part of his journey and explored resilience through an experiential lens. Well, the question is, what does science say about resilience? And there are a lot of folks well-intended to have a lot of theories and ideas about the resilience of, of man, right, or the human species. The fact is, is there's very, very little in the way of actual legitimate and bona fide empirical data. And what data sets largely exist are, are pretty thin. So a few years ago, Dr. Janet Metcalf who's been intimately involved with the FDMI's Mental Performance Initiative, who's a psychologist at Columbia. I brought up the theme or the topic of resilience. She said, you want to know about resilience? You got to meet my, you got to meet George. <laughs> and she was referring to George Bonanno. So I did a little research. I read his book, The Other Side of Sadness. And what I learned is, is that George has spent 20, 25 years studying mm-hmm. resilience and his data set is in order, like a couple hundred thousand. Yeah. So he truly has devoted his life to studying resilience as, as a researcher. So I, I thought it would be the perfect follow and say, all right, this is what Brendan tells us through that experiential lens. What is someone like Dr. George Bonanno, who's, who's legitimately an, an, an expert in an academic sense, what does he have to tell us about resilience? Excellent. I'm excited to revisit this discussion. So... Most of us are naturally resilient and bounce back relatively quickly after a traumatic event. At least that's what Dr. George Bonanno believes based on his research into the question of how human beings cope with loss and other (coughs) forms of adversity. Dr. Bonanno is professor of clinical psychology and chair of the Department of Counseling and Clinical Psychology at Columbia University's Teachers College. He's spent more than two decades assembling scientific evidence measuring human resilience, which he dissects in his book, The Other Side of Sadness, What the New Science of Bereavement Tells Us About Life After Loss. Welcome, Dr. Bonanno, to the 2019 Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Summit. Before we start discussing your work, We just heard FDNY firefighter Brendan Cauley recall his experience at the Black Sunday fire and his recovery process. What are your thoughts? Um, It was humbling. Uh, For me, I was on the edge of my seat. Um, It's it's humbling to be here with you all. I've spent most of my career in the laboratory in my offices interviewing people. So when I see somebody or hear stories like this, I'm I'm forever um, wrapped up and amazed. Even though in our work, we, we, as you said, we focus on the fact that most people are resilient, that still amazes me to this day. Um, Some of the things Brendan talked about particularly resonate, I mean, apart from all the, I want to say cool stuff, but the fascinating stuff. Um, 
the one thing that resonated with me was that he um, had said he's just like a normal guy. And that's one of the things our work has driven home for a long time is that um, resilience is the normative um, way of being. And not, not everybody is resilient, unfortunately, for lots of reasons. There are lots of complex reasons I can talk about. Um, but it is, just a, it is, a, it is part of our, our, our human makeup. And that's something, for some reason, we've forgotten that. And I'm curious why, and you know, we think, think a lot about why that is, but um, we, people do these things. Now, what Brendan went through is pretty extreme, um, but it's not, but it does have, things like this have happened to lots of people. There's a guy in my lab who was run over by a garbage truck. And he wasn't run over by one wheel, he was run over by all the wheels. Garbage trucks are something like 25 tons, and it basically flattened his leg and his hip into a pancake. And um, he's one of the most charming people I've ever met. And he came to work with me in the lab. And we talk about this all the time. Why was he able to endure that so easily, so well? I shouldn't say easily, but so well. Um, and the, the, the other thing that, that Brendan talked about was that he began to develop PTSD symptoms later on down the road. And that's one of the patterns that we see in our research. In my research, we don't only think of these events we think of these events as potentially traumatic events, not traumatic events. And we try to understand the different patterns people show. And one of the patterns is we would call delayed reactions. And those happen. They happen in a subset of people. And then they have to struggle with this maybe after the fact, after they've gone through all, you know, some of the other things. Um, and um, I, mean, I don't know what else to say beyond that. It's, it's, he told this story extremely well. And um, it's very real. Well, I'm excited to dive deeper into your work how did you begin exploring the field of grief and human being response to traumatic yeah. events? Um, it started, um, gosh, 1991, I think. I just received my, I had a convoluted story, but I ended up getting a PhD from Yale in clinical psychology, and I was basically doing experimental research in the laboratory with words and numbers and things. And um, I felt I wasn't quite getting at what I wanted to do, so I was offered a job when I finished my a PhD to head a bereavement project in San Francisco. San Francisco is a nice place. It was well paid, and I thought, well, this is compelling. Um, but I, but bereavement, I thought, um, really, bereavement? Um, at the time, there was very little research on bereavement, and it was seen kind of as a um, kind of marginalized um, field. And the dominant ideas about bereavement were that you have to go through stages and that everybody must work through the loss. So when I first began to look into it, I thought it, was a, it would be an interesting job. When I first began to look into it, I, I quickly became apparent that what people thought about bereavement was just didn't seem right, didn't seem accurate, didn't seem real. Um, and so I looked into it further, and I thought, well, we could really try to understand this. So that's one reason I took the, the, the position. I thought I'd be doing it for a couple of years, and then I'd go on my merry way. Um, but it just became so interesting, and so it seemed very important that, that how we understood loss, and this actually telescoped out eventually to how we understand trauma, were not quite correct, and so I could do something to change that. So that's really how it began. So you found that traditional grieving processes um, have proven not to be true. And right. what has your research discovered, and how have those traditional models of grief affected our overall ability to be resilient? Well, the traditional models of bereavement um, are that pretty much everybody, uh, when there's a, a loss, everybody suffers and suffers for a long time. And they, the traditional model also had this sort of stage idea. You go through these different phases of it. And that if you don't do that, if you don't suffer in this really painful, drawn-out way, to work through the loss, this is one of the dominant ideas that people call it the grief work idea. You have to work it through and suffer it through until you kind of come out on the other side. Um, and that was the dominant idea at the time. And that actually had a lot of negative consequences for people because as we began to find out in our research, we started tracking people and getting as many people as we could, that that's not what most people were doing. Most people were, were basically OK after a bit of time. It doesn't mean, when I, I don't know how much you've heard about this. And I know people often react to it, like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Um, that um, if people are okay, it doesn't mean they didn't grieve, it doesn't mean they don't feel sad, it doesn't mean they don't suffer, but they can function. They can, 
And, and by functioning, I mean that work, the, the classic thing goes all the way back to what Sigmund Freud said about work and love. They're capable of concentrating, focusing on what they need to do, and they're capable of being close and available for other people. Those are the two sort of hallmarks of mental health. And we found that most people can do that. They can keep living their lives, and they can, have, they can experience um, joy in life, and they can do that pretty much right after the loss. And, and this is usually like 60, 70% of the people who experience a loss. So we started documenting this and trying to figure out what was going on. One of the things we did is we started, we, I do a lot of, um, I always sort of call it nerd stuff. We do a lot, we code facial expressions. We put electrodes on people's faces and we put electrodes on people's bodies and things. And, um, and we take blood sometimes. Um, I'm squeamish, but we take blood. Do it. Um, when we started coding the face, we found that people show genuine signs of joy. And we, you can get this from the muscles around the eyes. When you feel genuine joy and you smile or laugh, you contract these muscles around the eyes, these little circular muscles. And what we found was that people were doing that. People would be coming to our interviews and tell us about what happened to the loss. And they'd be crying or, or really intensely feeling the pain. And then they would laugh and smile and show this genuine joy response. And when we started finding that, was, nobody thought that that was possible. If you would look at the idea of laughter or joy after loss, people would think, oh, that's crazy. That's denial. And we found that most people do that. And we've you know, since gotten into why that is. I mean, part of it is if I'm talking to you and you're, you're helping me grieve my loss and I'm feeling intense pain, and but then I'm going to look at you and 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 make a uh, you know feel feel some joy for a moment, and that's going to help you stay with me. And that's kind of probably why we do it. Um, so I mean, we found out a lot of things. The, the, if I can just keep babbling. <laughs> well, I have a quick question. You keep saying many people or most people. How many people have you worked with over the course of your career and done research on? Um, well, it depends on how you count it, but I would say three, four hundred thousand. Um, we, so we, we get people in the lab and we do intensive things and maybe a hundred at a time and then we get other data sets. We did a study of, of soldiers. So we got 160,000 from the beginning to we followed. This is an ongoing study. Um, right now we're looking at 8,000 people who had experienced any one of major health, um, life-threatening health events. You know, so we, we get all kinds of different data sets and, and in all different kinds of ways. Moving a little bit away from the analytic side, you've used the term coping ugly. Yeah. What does that mean, and how is it beneficial to overall uh, resilience? Yeah. Well, that comes from, I grew up in Chicago. I don't know if anyone's going to remember this. Um, I'm probably, I'm, I'm older than I look, I've been told. Um, the, the, in the 70s, the White Sox, Chicago White Sox, were winning ugly. Does anyone remember that? Not many White Sox fans in the world anyway. Um, the Cubs are so adorable, right? And just everyone likes the Cubs. Um, but the White Sox were winning for the first time in a while, and they were winning ugly, is what the, the baseball reporters called it, because they were, making, they were making mistakes, they were sloppy, but they were winning. So that was a very interesting idea to me. And when, when we began to see something similar in our work, we called it coping ugly. And the idea is that when we're faced with adversity, oh, we really have to just get beyond it. We have to get through it. And sometimes whatever we do is going to be fine as long as we don't you know, harm somebody or harm ourselves. right? So we, we call this kind of coping ugly. People can do things that we wouldn't normally think are healthy, but they're the kind of things that are going to just get you through right now. What's an example? I knew you were going to ask me. Um, <laughs> um, it, I mean, it can be almost anything, say drinking. Which is not, you know, people wouldn't think drinking is healthy or, you know, going, um, just chucking everything and going away for a few days. Or there was a woman that, that, um, her, turned out her, she was in the military and her, and she and her husband, this is a kind of a weird story, but she and her husband were in the kind of, um, kinky sex. And when he died, she had breast implants and did a wet t shirt contest. And that, that actually was viewed as suspect because it was also, there was a murder investigation going on. People thought, well, this isn't, and I actually testified, this isn't proper grieving behavior. Maybe she killed him. Um, and um, I testified in this case um, that, well, it's a little weird, but it's, it's not. It doesn't mean she killed him. And it turned out that that's, it turned out the story was that they were, the, the kinky sex thing came out later and the fact that that would have made him happy, so she did it. 
right? So, you know, was, <laughs> and, you know, so that was a way of kind of for her getting through it. And, it, you know, it's, it wouldn't be a thing that most mental health professionals would say, yes, very nice. You know, they, they, <laughs> my, my next question is what types of behaviors or characteristics do you find of people who are Resilient. I don't know if this is like a good. No, it, well, so far breast implants and right? white t-shirt compasses are not on the list. But so the things that we found. I mean, it's it's interesting because we find a lot of different things contribute to resilience. Um, and in, in the statistical language, it, we'd say they're just lots of small effects. But there are some key factors. I mean, one of the things that make makes people resilient or helps people be resilient is resources. And resources are under messy. You know, Brendan said the FDNY was was really there in a lot of ways, and that's really important. And that's not all, often the case for everybody. That's a really important thing. The other thing that Brendan said was about people being there, and that's huge, actually. That having a, a, a group of people who not only will support you, but will listen, will will tolerate it. And sometimes in the research world, we know we have some the general idea of emotional support. People say, "Yeah, I'm there for you." Right? But there's another factor, which is they're willing to listen to your deepest worries and concerns. And that's something that, that, that is really important. And when that doesn't happen, it's much harder for people. So having, having you know, people around, people that are connected to you, people that say, you know, we're still here and you're still part of us, that's really important. Um, individually, one of the, we found a, a set of things that seem to be prominent in most people and in, in most people that are resilient is sense of optimism about the future, it'll be okay. Um, a sense of, we call it self-efficacy or confidence, not in, 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 in terms of what I'm able to do, but what, how I'm able to, to manage this situation. I'm, able, I'm going to get through this. I'm going to be able to dredge up the resources to do it. Um, and another thing is flexibility. And this is something I, I know you'll probably ask me about that. And, um, we can talk about it now if but, you'd like. Yeah. Yeah. I want to mention one other thing before we get to mm -hmm. flexibility, and that's stress, um, low stress. Stress is really not a good thing. And it's very hard to control stress for almost everybody. Um, and, um, you know, there's, there's traumatic, there are traumatic events. And I know this is something that, that, that lots of people ask about that when we're confronted with a lot of traumatic events or a lot of um, events that could be really difficult, that's different than actual stress. So, in, as I mentioned in my research, we don't call events traumatic anymore, we call them potentially traumatic. Because people can be through an event that most people would say is traumatic, but they didn't experience as traumatic. They can experience something that's really difficult, but it's not necessarily stressful for them because they were able to manage the stress. And I'm a big fan of this. We have a stress response system that's marvelous. It goes way back to, to it goes all the way down the evolutionary line to lower animals. We have very similar stress response system. It works really, really well. So when we're confronted with something that's life-threatening or really dangerous or just scary, we activate our stress response system and it kicks in and we get upset, we have altered state of consciousness, you know, cortisol and all these other reactions we have do something. And we can be upset for a few days, we can have difficulty sleeping. That's all part of the natural way we function. And that usually runs its course in a fairly short time. That's completely adaptive. It's when we don't reel that in that then we get in trouble. It's much harder to be resilient when you have chronic stress, when you're constantly in a state of stress and it, you, your body begins to wear out, your capacities begin to wear out. So keeping stress at a minimum is, is super important in terms of just maintaining your health but also being resilient. So then in public service, we're often told that repeated exposure to traumatic events will eventually result in PTSD or some other type of disorder. Yeah. Uh, what is your opinion about this narrative? Um, I wouldn't say it's necessary. I would, I would modify it. Um, so we, one can be exposed to a lot of potentially traumatic events and be fine. Um, if there are events that are manageable, they're part of what, what one does. It's when they become extremely stressful, when they become traumatically stressful, repeatedly, then we get in trouble. And for the reason I just mentioned, that then we begin to wear out. Our, you know, our stress response is a biological phenomenon. So every time we react to a, to, with stress, we kind of drain our biological system. If we do that all the time, then the system starts to wear out. So it's really, it's, it's not exposure to potentially traumatic events or events that people would think are, pretend, are traumatic, but it's, it's being overwhelmed by them repeatedly. That's what's, what's the problem. 
and, and sometimes they go together, but it, that's, yeah, that's the issue. How do you explain the inconsistencies among first responders when it comes to the frequency of exposure to traumatic events and those being diagnosed with PTSD or other disorders? What do you attribute that to? Um, well, it, it's, it's attributable to a lot of things. Um, it, it, there, there is some of the factors I've already mentioned, the, the characteristics of the person, um, training and experience. Um, I mean, so training and experience accrue over time. Um, training helps us a lot. The training you all get, I assuming you all, there are different types of people here, but I assume you all get intensive training. And that really helps because it keep, helps, you all, helps you understand what you're going through. Um, the personality character support networks. And we, we know that, I mean, this is always a little tricky for me to, to talk about when we know that there are some people who cope better, better and, and poorer, more poorly with stress. And that has to do with people's life stories. Um, with, with, with past histories, with a lot of things. And those are kind of difficult things to know off the top of your head. But there, so there are people who are less equipped to deal with stress. Um, for example, I, I mean, I, I have never thought about being a firefighter or a police officer. I don't know what that means, but um, I'm not sure I could handle that, right? So, you know, there, there, are, there, are, there are different people in the world. Um, and then, you know, there's, an, there's luck also. Um, and just happenstance. I mean, Brendan's story really struck me that he, when he said he was flipping over, and you know, then and he had no control of that, and somehow he hit in the right way. So there's there's a lot of there's good luck and there's bad luck, and that's something beyond our control. And so sometimes th things happen to people that he just can't control, or happens in such a way at the right time or the wrong time, and those things do happen. Politically and financially, there's. Um something tied to the post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, right. definitely, most definitely. <laughs> most definitely politically, too. Um, the, in fact, studying PTSD or studying, studying traumatic events has been an eye-opener for me politically. I'm, I'm a little naive about some of these things as I just do my research and you know, go home. Um, we started working, we've done a lot of work with veterans, and I was really surprised um, how political the work with veterans. So the first time we did one of these big studies, we had we started with a, the sample of 160,000 soldiers as they transitioned into veterans, and we tracked them over time. And this is you know a big team of people. I was very fortunate to be involved in this study, and we mapped for the first time these different trajectories, and we showed that 83% of U.S. soldiers who went to Afghanistan or Iraq, and both of those theaters had just completely bottomed out, the no symptoms at all, more or less, for, for like the six or seven years we followed them. And now it's up to nine years. Um, and that was big news, you know. And, I, and it, it, you can attribute a lot, that a lot to the training that people in the military go through. Um, but it was, a, it, was a, it was a damn good study. It was probably the best study ever done. And I thought, this is going to be great. This is going to influence the way that the, the, the DOD or the government thinks about war. Um, and it had surprisingly little impact. And I've heard people criticize the study. And I was quite surprised that that's the politics of PTSD. There's a lot of investment in PTSD because there's a lot of money in it. And people have, I mean, I'll just tell you this. This is a little indiscreet of me. But people have told me at the National Institute of Health that they don't like what I'm doing. Um, in the trauma part of it, because it's bad for business. It's bad for bringing the money through. Um, and that's a reality. Um, and it's also, it's a, it's a worldview that, that, that the, 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 I mentioned this to a few other people, treatment for veterans is not so great. And one of the reasons treatment for veterans is not so great, because it's completely focused on PTSD. And there are veterans who have PTSD, undoubtedly. And it's about 7% by our estimates. For, soldiers who have been deployed, it's about 7%. 7% of the soldiers who are deployed is a lot of people, right? And there is suicide as well. But it's not everybody. And what we found is the majority of soldiers who are struggling are struggling with something we call transition stress. It's very different from PTSD. They're struggling becoming civilians after being soldiers. And the lo mo most soldiers, not all, but most soldiers become soldiers as their first adult identity. They go, they become, they go into the military at a very young age. They become soldiers when they're, when they're very young, and they, they become adults in the military. It's very hard to switch then. They go from a world where it's highly structured, incredibly meaningful, important, lots of training, lots of supports, 
to a civilian world that is often seen as meaningless. There's no skills. There's no supports at all. And that's just plain difficult. Some people have a hard time with relationships, have a hard time getting a job. Um, they have no transferable skills. And that's a, it's a very difficult road to hoe, and a lot of soldiers, a lot of veterans have a difficult time with it. There's almost nothing aimed at that. There's almost no money for that because it's all focused on PTSD. And when I was uh, beginning my training, I worked at, uh, with veterans with, in, the, in the VA hospital, my first inpatient job. And um, I'd say half to three-quarters of the veterans I worked with um, did not have PTSD, but they all had the diagnosis, and they had this they were having other difficulties, but they couldn't get any treatment if they didn't have PTSD. So that's still an ongoing problem, and that's the political nature of it. Now, I don't, the VA is very complicated, <laughs> way too complicated, and I'm, I don't know the half of it, but it's a situation that we're trying to change right now. And there, you know, these kind of things um, ripple out in other ways, too. Based on all of your research and all the data that you collected, do you think that research, uh, resilience can be trained or cultivated? Uh, yeah, that's a that's a, a great question and a very tough question. Um, I'm very cautious about it. Um, I think resilience can be enhanced. Um, I think out and out resilience training is maybe not a good idea. I'm probably insulting somebody right now as I say this, um, but um, when people ask me about making people more resilient. The first question I asked, I asked them a question back, or two questions. Okay, what is resilience and what predicts someone's going to be resilient? And if people can't answer that question, they can't build resilience. So first we have to say, what do we mean by resilience? Then we have to really understand, what is it that makes people resilient in the first place? And from our research, we found that most people are just plain resilient, as I mentioned. We define it as a trajectory over time. But then we've been identifying the pieces, the things that people have that are resilient. Can you enhance that in people? Maybe, maybe not. For optimism is one of them. Can you give people optimism workshops? I don't know. That seems kind of dumb to me, actually, because if if you say to people, just be optimistic, then oh, apologies if anybody does optimism workshops here. Um, but you know, it's 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 not necessarily clear how we inculcate these things. There are also some very very serious um, uh, backfires. Prophylactic interventions where everybody gets them often backfire. Um, there was one, the fam two famous ones, an eating disorders intervention and a suicide prevention intervention in the school systems, and both of those backfired. They increased the problem. Um, so if you tell, I mean, I, I'm very interested in, in human factors, and there's something in the human factors literature called risk homeostasis, and that's the idea that when you when you, that all of us make estimates of how dangerous something is, everything, like getting in a car or getting on the Amtrak, you know, I go to Italy a lot. I, I assess everything in Italy. I'm getting on a ferry. Do they know what they're doing here? Because they sink ferries in Italy. So I don't know. <laughs> you know um, so we, have the, we make these assessments. When you, when you make people safer, you change their risk assessments. So the classic examples are bicycle helmets and seatbelts and cars. Both of those increased accidents. But they, made, they do make people safer. But people get a little bit more careless. So all of this, you put this all together and think, well, what, is it, what happens if we tell people, I'm going to make, this is a workshop to make you more resilient. I'm going to make you more resilient. Do people then think, I'm, I'm not resilient then, because we have to, I have to do this to become resilient? Or maybe people, that's one possibility. People might also think, maybe I can just be real, I can do anything now, because I'll be fine afterwards, so I'll take more risks. We just don't know. So I think a better way to do it, and I think resonant with what you're doing here and what other workshops like this and other things I've seen Jason talk about, I think what, what these th the way these kinds of events are helpful is they don't, it's not a resilience workshop, but it's a way to enhance the qualities that will make you healthier and also probably more resilient. So, so reducing stress, um, you know, other things like that. Those are just plain good things to do, right? And those are also the things that, that make us more resilient. Getting a sense that I know how to cope with things. Um, having a sense of I need supports in my life, and if I don't have that, I should work on that a little bit. Um, those are all the kind of things that are just plain healthy things to do, and they also happen to build resilience. Um, and, and the other approach, the other main approach we've thought about is also um, 
looking for way, if people have deficits in something, then that's a great ex reason to then have a kind of a training or help in some way. We were talking about this before about um, in, in, the, in first responders and other, um, uh, uh, what's the broader term for what you all do? Public service. Public service, okay. Um, there's, there's seeking counseling, but then there's also just seeking help in some ways. And so um, say um, one feels like, a person feels like they're just unable to control the stress, which is very common. I'm in, in academia and everybody's stressed out in academia. Um, and we don't do anything except sit around, right? So, um, so when you, there, one could get help in controlling stress and that would be a fantastic thing, right? So we can offer those kinds of services. I think th that's really kind of the way to like address this broader issue. Interesting, yeah. thank you for that. I wanna go back into your book where you share your own bereavement process with the loss of your father and you talk about traditional structured rituals or routines surrounding death and bereavement, how are those beneficial to resilience? Um, I think the, the traditional rituals, which are largely in, in other cultures, um, in, the, in Western culture, there isn't so much anymore. Um, they, they do the things that I, I think the FDNY and, and I, probably the other groups as well that I just don't know about, certainly the military, do um, they gather people around to tell you we're here, and that's that's enormous, and that's it actually goes way back. That is what traditional bereavement rituals are all about. They, the community would come together as many, sometimes enormous numbers of people, and just to tell you, the the person you cared about so much is gone, but you're here and we're here with you, and we we share this with you, and we celebrate the person. That's enormous, and those are the kind of things I think that we've lost a little bit of touch with, and I've been very impressed by. Um, learning about what what uh, first responders and public service people do, there's something similar to that. So it's alive in those professions. I think that's the key part of it. I want to go back to that word flexibility yeah. and dive into that. Uh, can you explain why you're so intrigued by flexibility? Yeah. So, I mean, flexibility is, what, about 10 years ago, we began to study flexibility. We tried to understand it because it seemed to be a quality that was inherent in people who were doing well. Um, and so we've tried to break it down over there. Is there a, I had a slide, I don't know if we wanted. There's that one, you want the other one? There's another one, yeah. I mean, the slide is a little bit busy, yeah. Um, what we've done is we've tried to, we've seen that people who are more flexible seem to cope better, so we tried to break it down and study it. And the, the gist of this is there are three pieces of it. We first um, kind of assess what's happened to us. We ask ourselves, what is, what's happening to us? What's, what's the kind of the world demanding of me? And then we decide how we can respond. We probably don't even think about this. It happens quickly. And we, we kind of choose a way to respond, a way to keep ourselves on an even keel. And then we adapt and adjust over time. We say, is this working? Do I need to do something else? So, you know, you, you could take an example of you've been through something really difficult and you're feeling a lot of stress. You can ask, why? Why am I feeling the stress? What's happening? And just simply doing that sometimes, we call that context sensitivity, but simply doing that tells people a lot about what's going on. And that simple step that, you know, I, I'm noticing that I'm, I'm not quite myself right now. This isn't good. And so why? What's happening? What is, what, what is the world confronting me with? And then we can choose a kind of a, a, you know, a way to respond. I need to talk to people or I need to just buck up or I need to do any of these things. I need to cope ugly or you know, one of these things we, we mentioned. And then we monitor, we just say, as well, is it working? Is this helping? If not, let me try something else. And, and that's the gist of it in, in the simplest terms. So we, we measure these things and we try to understand it. And, and we're, we're, we're moving forward with it. You know, I mean, I'm a scientist, so. I like it nice and complicated. But the, the, this, the, the, the gist of it is, is that when we're confronted with something, typically when we cope well, we, we adapt to it. We temporarily um, you know, modify ourselves and what we're doing in order to get through it. And that's a very human thing to do. And we're simply identifying it and saying, this is what people do, so let's try to understand it better. And then we can see if there, maybe there's some people who don't do this so well. In fact, the research has shown there are some people who don't do this so well. So maybe we can teach people how to do this. Hitting into why, I've heard you say it's taken 20 years to prove what common sense tells us in terms of resilience. Why is it so beneficial to have your data that you've collected? Um, it's a great question. Some people would say it's not. Um, but um, I think that the, the, 
the idea is that, I mean, it, it is common sense that most people are going to be okay. And that's just an idea we've lost touch with. Um, if you go back historically, you know, that, that was pretty much how people thought about things. You just, you, you have no choice. You just deal with things. Um, and we somehow got into this, we've kind of got, I think we've lost our way a little bit to where we, we really assume people can't deal with things. Um, and it, it really doesn't make much sense. So um, I could say that and it would have no impact. But if I do, if I do research for 20 years, and then show it, then people begin to believe it. And the research has had a lot of impact in that way. So, and I think there are lots of things. As a scientist, I always want to know, is this really true? And I've seen it many times where something we think is, needs to be this way, and maybe it's not necessarily the case. So with, if, with flexibility, as an example, since the slide is up, we, it's a very simple idea that being flexible is going to be kind of help you deal with things. But what is it, and how do we understand it? And, Pretty much everything we found it makes sense. It's common sense, but now we know. And common sense isn't always correct, right? So we are, you know, it's like Copernicus and the, you know, we used to think the sun came up because it went around the earth. And um, Copernicus said it didn't. And the only way that people believed him was when he almost was burned alive. He was luck lucked out and didn't get burned alive for being a her heretic. But then Galileo came around and, and made some observational data and said, oh, Yes, now we can tell, we have actually data to show it's true. Galileo went to prison, went to house arrest in the Vatican for doing that. But, um, um, you know, the, again, this common sense is not always correct. So um, sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. I want to make sure that we have enough time for discussion and Q&A. So my last question for you is um, what anchors you and helps you be resilient uh. in the face of trauma? Um, that's a great question. Um, I think um, people in my life, I make a great effort to keep people in my life, um, very, very close friends. Um, I've always been very optimistic. I'm absurdly optimistic. Um, I try to keep the stress down. That's, I find the stress is really hard. Um, I do a lot of physical exercise, which really helps. I, I do a lot of other things. Um, I, I, one I didn't mention, actually, is humor. And earlier in our work, we found that, that laughter and smile, genuine positive experiences make a big difference. But actually, humor makes a huge difference. So um, me and my daughter, who's a teenager, asked me, how is it that I'm a professor when I'm such a ridiculous human being? And um, I mean, I'm trying to, be, to behave myself here. Um, so I'm not being too ridiculous, but I think fun and humor, those things are super important. And of course, we, we're not all capable of enjoying those things in the same way. But I think what I found is I found what makes me happy, what makes me feel good, what makes, you know, and I do that in my life. And I think that's one thing most people do, find out what works for you. And again, that gets back to the coping ugly. Whatever works for a person is what works for a person. Well, I'm very happy for having the chance to sit and talk to you one-on-one -on -one right now, but I think we'll wrap it up and give everybody 10, 15 minutes to talk. You have discussion uh, topics or talking points in your workbooks. Sorry to interrupt, but I think we should open it up to the floor now. So again, one person from the group should come up to the microphone to ask a question. Does anybody want to volunteer? I will call on you. <laughs> Sir, yeah. Yeah, come on up to the mic. Just got your opinion on this. So talking about resiliency and exposure to traumatic events. So my question would be like in individual units, can they have a, like what's culturally acceptable to how those uh, members of that unit can react to that situation and create the framework of the way you should be going with your exposure, repeated exposure. So like a busier unit, let's say, they're gonna respond differently to another unit because that's what's acceptable within that unit. Mm -hmm. You follow me what I'm saying? Like, can they, can they create a culture of resiliency by how they're acting? And can that transfer over to, let's say, younger members, because, hey, man, this is what's acceptable here, and this is how we're going to yeah, operate. Yeah. Is that something that's, you know... Possible, yeah. That, yeah. That, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Like, cause you can see, like, if you're going to say, hey, man, like, you go to a, a traumatic event, and they're going to send, let's say, 
a counseling unit to come by every every quarter that experience that event. And you're going to create an atmosphere where you can say, hey, we want you to feel sorry for yourself. Instead of, no, we want you to put your boots up and well, let's go to the next shot. You know, like, what's your opinion on that? <clears throat> um, I, I, I kind of, I, I think I understand the, the background to this question. Um, I think. Um, I, I think, it, I don't think it's a good idea to have a, a, a policy um, across, it's probably not a good idea. I don't know enough about the FTNY or other organizations to, to actually answer this question well. I don't have expertise in that, but I think it, it, the, 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 the nature of your question, can different houses or different, did you say units or houses? Or? I'd say a unit of, of, you know, like that specific unit, uh, yeah. what's acceptable within that unit on how they're going to react. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, th I think probably at an organizational level, what's acceptable would have to be justified in some way. You know, I mean, this is really almost an organizational question that um, if it makes sense and it works in that unit, that it would have to, it'd have to be a way that made sense that had some sort of evidence behind it. You know what I mean? Um, but then it would be perfectly logical. This is because I think the issue of this is how we do it and you have to, I know this is, this is a problem that's kind of looming. Um, and so um, this is just the way we do it isn't quite good enough. But if this is the way we do it because it works and here's the evidence or something, that would be, I think, great. You know, and and, it, and, and there are, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm saying like, in, 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 so it's like, what, 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 what direction are you going to face when you're exposed to that? It's like, you see Brendan talking earlier, what choice are you going to make and how are you going to go with that? If there's some guidance within that, like this is the choice we want to go on. Yeah. As opposed to letting you, letting someone you know, fall by the wayside or feel sorry for yourself or not be less resilient. Like, can you create a culture of resiliency inside individual units? It seems feasible, yeah, it does seem feasible. Um, yeah, it's a little hard for me to say anything more than that because I don't really quite yet know. Another question? We heard from these two groups. Anybody in the back want to come up? <laughs> I see. I see movement. We briefly touched on this in our group a little bit. Um, you spoke earlier about transitional issues, um, yeah. transitional stresses, and things like that. Uh, and there's a big difference between. There's a lot of similarities between the fire service and the military, and also, also a lot more differences. Um, one of the things we were discussing was the idea that if you were on a military deployment that may last six or eight or 10 months, um, your ability to uh, cope and, and uh, deal with issues and problems and, and potential events that you've had stretches over potentially four or five or six months, and then you come home and then you're dealing with the transitional issues. In the fire service, a lot of times we go to work for nine, 15, or 24 hours at a shot, and then you got to deal with that transitional uh -huh. stress every time you go home. Yeah. So, and then you come back. So it, it's a much higher tempo of uh, transitional stresses. I was wondering if there's any thought process or well, thought yeah. I cross behind that. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, I think it. I think probably the answer would be, this is not a great answer, but it's probably that it, it's individual. It's whatever works for different people, um, but it, that's that's it's really a, fa a fantastic question. It's a really provocative question because it seems like it could be something quite difficult, and um, there, there are probably nothing in place to to even think about that. I would guess. Um, yeah, that's something. I mean, that's something. My first thought is, yeah, let, let me study that. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, there, it, it, it really would seem like maybe it depends on the individual, what, what the person is leaving, what kind of firehouse they're leaving, and then what they're going to, what kind of situation they're going to, a family, a different, you know, um, are there different demands within specific families that would depend on what the person goes to and what they have to deal with. Um, you know, are they, are they, do they need to sleep when they get off duty and is that the issue that they, so, you know, that may, may be the thing to take care of is getting some sleep and building in ways everybody understands needs sleep or 
I need time to like, you know, do something else that's different from what I just did, or I need time to do something that's really low stress. You know, whatever it would be, I think identifying that probably would be on the individual level, and then maybe like, you know, putting in ways to, 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 um, to accommodate that. But it's a great question. It's really an interesting question. It would seem like that's something quite important. See, he asked a great question. Anybody else? One? Yeah, anybody else? <clears throat> I'm sorry, I talk about numbers and data. We have Paul and that's Conway. probably. Come on over. I think I'm going to follow up a little bit with what uh, Jimmy said, and that's that uh, you mentioned the young lady with her t shirt contest or whatever. Yes. Uh, <laughs> There are times, it seems, and at least in the time that I've been in the fire service, and it's getting stronger now. As Jimmy said, companies have a way of coping mm -hmm. with stress and with loss. And they do it on an individual company basis, and one mm -hmm. company might be better than the other. What I found is administration, and I was part of it, administration, not this part, uh, is that everything wants to go into a box. And we have a problem, we're gonna fit it in this box and we're gonna have to shove everybody into it, forcefully if need be. And I think it was refreshing to hear you say, at least as I understand it, individuals are individuals and how they cope with it and how they deal with it is their own way. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, from my personal experience, fire service that I was part of, that's somewhat unacceptable. Mm -hmm. You're going to do it our way. Yeah. And you're going to like it our way and you're going to like it. Yeah. And that, I think, created more stress because I would have company officers or firefighters that knew me when I was in the field and now I was in administration call and say, is there something, is there something wrong with me because I don't have something wrong with me? The culture of, uh, it seems to be more and more a culture of, I'm supposed to be a victim, mm -hmm. but I don't know why I don't feel like a victim. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a, uh, you know, the people who chose the, choose these professions, have, there, there's something in them, and I got a lot of it out of uh, the book Tribes, that there's, there's something in them that that's why they're here. Mm -hmm. So sometimes they don't feel overly affected by this. However, I guess the question is, how do we go back to our departments and try to get that across that we can't all fit in the same box. Yeah, yeah. These questions, it's, these questions resonate with me. I don't, I don't have answers about how to do this from within the fire department because I don't. That, that's not anything I really know about. But I think um, the idea that, that the one size fits all approach usually doesn't work so well for the reasons you just described. So I mean, there are ways to there. There may be ways to to move forward, um, just in a logical way of trying to understand. Okay, this firehouse clearly has a lot more going on, as you mentioned before. There's a lot. There are a lot. I, I don't know the metrics, number of fires or number of specific things that happen um, in this firehouse. And but this firehouse seems to deal with it really well. And as I mentioned before, if just saying we do it really well, just bugger off and leave us alone, isn't going to go very far institutionally because um, people are gonna, not going to believe that necessarily. But I think um, it's possible to, to demonstrate a firehouse is doing well and they're, they're collecting numbers or you know whatever, those kind of things, and then looking at what the firehouse does. Now, the tendency institutionally would probably be to say, OK, Firehouse X has had a lot of these challenges and they've done pretty well in terms of their, their sustaining you know, mental health, everybody do what Firehouse X does now. And that's probably the institutional response, I would guess. That's a common institutional response. Um, but it, it, it would, you know, again, as a scientist, I, my first thought is let's demonstrate that firehouses are different and that firehouses do things differently. They also have different um, challenges and that they um, have different outcomes. That's, that's doable. I mean, I don't know how you how would do that with, you know, um, I could do it, but that's what I do for a living, right? Um, 
so um, I think it's, it, 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 I mean, without getting into too, much, too, much, too many details about things that I can't really answer, I think it's very much a reality that, that firehouses are going to be like people in a way. Firehouses are going to be different. They're going to have different challenges. The people inside them are going to jowl in different ways, um, and they're going to solve their problems differently. I think that's very true. And it, it, it's, it would be difficult if it, if it were, if, a, a, if it's been forced upon firehouses to do things in a more um, a generic way, but that's an institutional reality typically. Yeah. But it makes perfect sense what you're saying to me. Do you want to come on up? So uh, regarding loss, there's a lot of people here different, not just yeah. in our service, but in business or yeah. businesses. How uh, some of the principles, that either in your book or what you've researched, can they apply to just a different type of loss at business, on a job site? Yes. Yeah, that's a great question. Yes, in fact. I mean, typically what I would say is anything that we, when we lose something that's crucial or a big part of who we are, a big part of our identity, then we often suffer, um, we can suffer the same kind of bereavement reactions. I mean, when we lose a person in our life, we've known them for long periods of time, we have invested a lot in people, so we have fairly strong reactions, but we can also f do the same thing about the loss of an opportunity, the loss of a career. Brendan was talking about if he couldn't go back to be a firefighter, that would be a loss of an identity that way. So definitely, most definitely. And sometimes people show the same kinds of reactions. So there's some of the same, um, uh, same uh, behaviors and you know, resilience factors apply as well. And my family is really into sports. Like, like I grew up in Chicago. And when I can't even watch most sporting events now because I know my brothers are, their lives are on the line when the, if the team doesn't do well. And they have actually grief reactions when, uh, when, when the team loses. And Chicago teams are, haven't been doing so well lately, so it's a lot of this going on. And so, you know, in that case, you know, I don't worry too much, but they do suffer. They literally suffer for a few days. But I think, you know, they can get beyond that. But other kinds of things like identity, like a job, like, um, the thing you thought was going to happen that didn't happen, yeah, that's very real. Yeah, and, and a lot of the same things hold for it. Yeah, a lot of the same behaviors. Yeah. And you had a question? Yeah. We have time for So as the self-proclaimed plan of the shift, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about humor. We're all in high-performing, very high-stress occupations where sometimes we deal with things in a Kind of weird way, kind yeah. of humorous way. Undoubtedly. And then when we go through the traumatic event, society and our families, pretty much the entire outside world expects us to kind of be broken. And also when we start dealing with it with humor, we're kind of looked at in disgust. Do you mind exploring a little bit more the, the role that humor plays yes. in how we cope, how we yeah. kind of get back to speed, and just what how it makes us the, the crews that we are? Yeah. Humor, it, it, I think it's a, it's a great point. Humor is extremely healthy. And there's a lot of research on what humor does. I mean, um, like the, the general laughter, laughter bonds people. And I've done this in, in classes. I've done it in auditoriums filled with people. If I start laughing right now, like, and it's not so easy to do in front of a lot of people, but if I just make myself start laughing, some of you will start laughing. And then other people will start laughing. Even if I tell you, I'm going to make you all laugh. And there'll be definitely people you know, who are, I'm not going to laugh at this clown up here. And if, but if I start laughing, people will laugh and other people laugh. There's a contagion, and it's very well documented. Humor has a contagion that makes people feel good. It just undoubtedly does. And I mean, when I say humor, I mean like genuine, you know, if you tell a really bad joke, you may not get anywhere with it. Um, so it does that. It also, it, 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 it's, the, the word we use, it gives you just a breather. It takes, you can't feel bad and feel good at the same time. Even if it's only for a few seconds, for a few minutes, it takes the strain off just for a few seconds and a few minutes. And um, so it's definitely good. It also helps people realize, you know, life is short and there's other ways to look at things. That's the, 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 the I mean, there's actually, in the Columbia Library, there's a, a you know, all these journals. There's a, the Journal of Humor. And um, I went to get a, to, I read a paper once, and I thought, I want to look. So I went to the Journal of Humor, to the shelf, 
and every third volume was missing. So somebody went to the Journal of Humor and just took them and hid them as a joke. I don't know. Um, and there, there's just something about jokes and humor that make us, you know, it, it gives it just the definition of humor that, that's that you'll find in the Journal of Humor is that you take something that you would normally expect and then you don't provide the thing you would normally expect and you make a kind of an amusing twist on it and that makes us laugh. So we enjoy that inherently. There's also brain research on humor. So it's good for us. It's definitely good for us. Absolutely without doubt. Yet there's a kind of a social compunction against it, as you mentioned that. And I've talked to a lot of people when we began to publish the studies on bereavement early on. Um, there was a lot of resistance to that. But people would contact me and say, you know, in my family we dealt with this by humor and our neighbors think we're kind of weird. And I, you know, always, I mean, I don't know what I can say to them except I think it's perfectly healthy, and so it's fantastic. And I know there's, there's like, there's gallows humor and these other kinds of humor, you know. And there's, I'm sure there's some really weird, crazy jokes that pop up in the firehouse, right? Undoubtedly, but that's part of the whole thing too. Yeah, it's great. So keep Thank doing you. it. Doc, we're uh, all trying to learn to be more resilient, to be stronger. And everyone in this room, you know, the nature of what we do, we kind of fashion ourselves to be tough guys. But we're not really cognizant that the toughest people are actually those that are at home, our, our wives. Uh, yeah. And how do you broach, you know, you talk about building an anchor and building your strength. There's no greater strength than to have that spouse. But oftentimes we bottle up what we see and what we go through, and sometimes with disastrous consequences. How can you broach you know, with your wife to explain what you do, to give them a better understanding of what you do, and to help them get through you know, the things that we deal with? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think I could use that answer myself when um, I think about it. Um, it's a very good question. Um, I think it's probably, again, it probably varies a great deal by individuals and relationships, like how the relationships work. Um, Probably my guess would be, and I'm just guessing in a kind of generic way, that, um, that probably the time for talking about what one went through would requ require some preliminary kind of, um, you know, kind of uh, stress reduction already, you know, in order to, because otherwise you're just going to communicate pain and stress if you're feeling pain and stress, uh, which is very hard for people. It's very hard for other people to tolerate pain and stress. Um, and it wears other people out. But if we, um, you know, if we, if we have a, a moment to communicate what, what I went through today or what I've been going through or this is what's happening in a way that's uh, more palatable, I think that would probably go a long way. Um, so it, it, I'm, ki it, I'm kind of suggesting without knowing how much I, I, how much I, I think this is actually correct that um, Kind of first finding ways to, to um, you know, to, to uh, I don't know what the words are, debrief or deprocess, let it let go a little bit, take the weight off a little bit, and then communicate what I went through that day. It would be a lot easier to do that. And again, it would depend on, on who the person is that's hearing it, how much they want to hear about it, or what role they want to play. Um, but I think it's a, it's a very important question, and I think that's it's it's a good idea to be doing that. Um, I guess we'll wrap it up here and head to lunch. Thank you, everyone, for your thoughtful questions. Thank you, doctor, for your time. Thank you. Jason, I have to admit, I was surprised by the example he gave for coping ugly, but that definitely helped keep the audience engaged as we were nearing the lunch break. Can you recall how people reacted to the summit before the break? What I think folks enjoyed about George's talk is that despite being this academic expert, he humanized the narrative. He conveyed his, his scientific findings in a way that resonated with everyone in the room, whether they were firefighters, whether they were cops, whether they were coaches, whether they were, they were nurses. Mm -hmm. And I think his ability to connect through anecdote and, and, and conversation was, uh, was super helpful for, for the audience. Definitely. And I, I think when you listen to George, his findings are largely 
optimistic, which is certainly favorable, right, for everyone in that room who works in a high-risk industry, knowing at some point in their life they may lose a comrade or a brother or a sister in, in their line of work. I, I think um, I think his 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 findings are are very optimistic. Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.